What's up, everybody? Happy Tuesday. Welcome to Space Talk. If this is your first time joining, hello, I am your host, Athena Brensberger. Some of you might know me as Astro Athens on a bunch of my other platforms. Uh, you can also call me the in-app astronomer here on Colin. I started this podcast uh, to make a place where all of us can come together and chat a little bit about space exploration and astronomy and all the things that have to do with the universe. Um, I myself am a personal huge fan of just rocket launches in general, rocket science, uh, space missions, and of course, astrophysics. Um, So what I like to do at the beginning of every week, which is what this episode is focused on, is to talk about what you have to look forward to in the night sky this week, where I put together a ton of different astronomical events and deep sky objects and even some space history that are um, related to every single date that you will be living through this week. So uh, what I like to start off with usually is something called Astronomy Word of the Week. Uh, This sometimes changes with Astronomy Term of the Week, kind of depending on what exactly it is that we're chatting about. And then maybe by the end of this episode, we'll jump into Astronomy Picture of the Day. If you guys don't know about APOD, go on over to apod.nasa.gov and tell me what you see. Also, just a heads up, feel free to call in anytime during these episodes. I plan a ton of content just so that we have things that we can go into our backyard at night and look up at the night sky and look forward to seeing, whether you're in the northern or southern hemisphere. But I also love to hear from you guys. I love chatting with you. So um, at any time, feel free to tap the call-in button. You're not interrupting. Um, and if you ever feel like you are and you're calling in anyway, I have no problem stopping mid-sentence to chat with Um, was a fellow stargazer or fellow space lover. So this is a little bit of a redo episode from yesterday because I was recovering from laryngitis. And so because of that, also, we have our special guest interview tomorrow, Wednesday. Uh, His name is Corey Powell. He is a science writer and um, has such an incredible background and is currently working on a new publication and a new podcast with Bill Nye. That's right, Bill Nye the Science Guy, if you guys know about him. So he'll be on tomorrow at 3 p.m. Central Time if you want to tune into that episode. Um, And as I mentioned, today's episode is going to be focused around what you can catch in the night sky. So before I jump into astronomy term of the week, if you guys can look at the bottom of your screen to the emojis, if you're located in the Northern Hemisphere, can you please send me an emoji so that I know who I have that I'm talking to, because I do cover both hemispheres. Awesome. I got a rocket there. Awesome. Awesome. Um, And if you are in the Southern Hemisphere, please let me know by sending an emoji. So this way also I can um, maybe put together some space events for you guys as well, because we do have two deep sky objects visible this week that are mainly visible from the Southern Hemisphere. Okay. Didn't get anyone right there, so that's okay. Um, got my Northern Hemisphere friends. What's up? So I myself am a New Yorker, and I am now in Texas <laughs> looking at the nice big open skies. So we got a lot of cool space events this week. Let's jump into astronomy term of the week. I went with gravitational slingshot. And the reason I chose this was actually kind of a silly reason. I put together a weekly email newsletter called the Weekly Transmission. And uh, I was looking up different GIFs um, that are space-related. And this one popped up from the Science Channel that shows two stars and their orbit that they are tracing. And they are orbiting around something that looks like a black hole, 
reason it looks like a black hole is it's a dark circle with a ring around it, which is most likely the event horizon or the photon sphere. Um, and so I decided to chat about what's happening in this GIF. This a gravitational slingshot, as uh, based on general relativity, is usually when an object in space has mass, it has a gravitational influence. This is what Einstein said in his general relativity theory. And so it influences everything around it, warping the very fabric of space itself. And this causes for any nearby objects to get drawn in towards that bigger body of mass. And so in the gift below, or if you guys want to check it out or not, or just visualize it with me as I talk us through it, we see two stars orbiting a black hole. One of the stars is a lot brighter, and we can see that as the star approaches the black hole, it increases in speed. The star is falling towards the black hole, and as it gets closer, the gravitational effect or gravitational force gets stronger. So as it's getting closer, it's getting stronger. This is also due to centripetal acceleration, which we can get into that another time. But something more specifically that's interesting here is I chose gravitational slingshot to describe this because you quickly see it whip away from the black hole and continue along its orbit. This can happen with objects like asteroids. Asteroids in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter sometimes can get affected by the really strong gravitational influence of Jupiter. And this can cause an asteroid to get flung off of its trajectory or its orbit, the path it was supposed to be on, the path it was like really maybe content with. Not that it would be content because it's not a sentient being, but it can get flung off of that um, pathway. And this can then cause for the asteroid to either be flung out into the outer solar system or in towards the inner solar system, possibly flying by Earth, maybe potentially becoming a near-Earth object. So this is a, something that we, we hear about quite a lot in astronomy, um, gravitational slingshots. It doesn't just happen naturally. In fact, um, rocket science uses this for um, saving on rocket fuel for when you have a space probe in space and you are flying past, say, the orbit of Jupiter. If you have it at the right distance from the planet, you will be able to get picked. You'll be able to pick up its gravitational effect and its influence and just enough to be able to then use that as an acceleration for the space probe itself. Hence being able to accelerate a space probe, hence being able to maybe change its direction and without even having to use any thrusters or any rocket fuel or engines. Uh, so this is something, as I mentioned, that comes around quite a lot. So that is what I chose for astronomy term of the week, gravitational slingshot. Now to jump into our must-see celestial events, the dates for that are February 21st to the 28th, so this last week of February. Now, uh, everything that I was sort of looking up, I have I have like 15 different various sources for looking up all the things that are visible in the night sky. Um, I also make my own star, sky charts as well, um, actually using sky and telescopes, so I'm not doing it with like a pencil and a, an astrolabe or anything, but... Um, because of this, if you can generate them for your own area and you can see what's visible every night, what conjunctions happen, what planets align with each other. So I tend to put these together uh, for these various various events. So on February 27th at about 1 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 
Venus, also nicknamed the Evening Star, and that's because it's it's a planet. It's not a star, but it's the brightest object that you see other than the moon um, at night. It's usually the first thing that you'll see, um, and a lot of people for a very long time thought it was a star. And so it was the first star in their eyes to, that they would see in the evening just past like evening twilight, right when the sky's starting to get dark. So Venus is going to be located about nine degrees north of the moon. Nine degrees. Um, if you haven't joined Space Talk before and you're not familiar with the degree uh, understanding of how that works when it comes to the sky, a uh, little tip is if you hold your fist out from your left, so say you're using your, your right fist, from your index finger knuckle to your pinky knuckle is about 10 degrees in the night sky. So if you're holding it up at arm's length, about an average adult um, arm and about an average adult fist is going to stretch about 10 degrees across the sky. So that's a really good way to to help measure that. Your pinky is about one degree, uh, and there's a bunch of other hand gestures you could use to sort of figure out all the different degrees in the sky. But the easiest is the fist. It's about 10 degrees. So if you're looking about 1 a.m. at the sky and you see the moon, Venus is going to be just about a fist distance away from it. So just about, about north, a little bit further north. Then on February 27th, this is the same date, so later that night, about 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the planet Mars is now going to be four degrees north of the moon. So what's happening here is the moon is now passing through all these different visualizations of the sky, uh, through all these different locations of where these planets are during this time of the year. And so it should make for a pretty beautiful evening sky to look up at. So that'll be also on February 27th. Then we have two events on February 28th. Mercury is about four degrees north of the moon. But here's the tricky thing. It's going to be at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So you might say, hey, Athena, what are you talking about? This is the afternoon. Like, how am I going to be able to see that? And you're completely right. If you are in the Northern Hemisphere, you're not going to see it. But if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, that's nighttime for you, kind of depending on where you're located, how many hours ahead you are from Eastern time. Um, and also, you know, west. So if you're further west, so say if you're in Singapore, you're in Hong Kong, you will be able to see this later in the night, about 12 hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time. So uh, this should be pretty cool to catch if you want to try and see Mercury um, with the moon. But for us right now, the moon is, so if you're anywhere in the United States, um, Mercury is visible earlier in the morning. And then also on February 28th, Saturn is about four degrees north of the moon at 7 p.m. So early in the evening, however, it should be dark enough for you to see that. If you haven't seen Saturn's rings before through a telescope, I highly recommend doing that. Um, it's super cool to see. Uh, if you see it just in the sky with the unaided eye, which just means without binoculars or a telescope, it's going to just look like a star. Uh, it's going to be really dim as well. Um, but if you're looking at it with maybe just some simple binoculars with like a 10 magnification, doesn't have to be anything fancy. You could get them maybe on Amazon or Best Buy for like 20 bucks. You should be able to see um, Saturn pretty nicely. You won't see the rings with a pair of binoculars like that. You'll need a little bit stronger magnification. Um, but you should be able to see um, this really, really cool planet aligned with the moon. So that's what I've put together for this week of Musty Celestial Events. 
And there are two other types of things happening in the sky, but those are our deep sky objects. So let's go ahead and jump into the deep sky objects. Um, but first, I'm going to ask um, once more for everyone here, are, is anyone here in the Southern Hemisphere? So we've got a couple open star clusters that will be visible. Um, okay, did not get any emojis. That is perfectly fine. Something I'm really excited about is Colin is going to be installing, I believe, a chat function soon. So that's going to be awesome because then I can chat with you guys as well. Um, if you guys are, don't want to ever pop on to, you know, to, to verbally say hi, you can type it. On February 21st, um, which, oh no, that was yesterday. I'm so sorry. I was I was going to record this yesterday and I just was too sick. I couldn't, I could, literally could not talk um, through the podcast. I kept coughing. It was so embarrassing. But um, it, might, it may still be visible tonight. So I'm going to read this anyway. It'd be cool if it's not. Otherwise, there's another one that's visible on the 27th. It's an open star cluster in Carina. So the Carina Nebula. It's known as NGC 3114, if you are taking notes. That's why I read it so slow. Um, <laughs> the open star clusters are very brilliant to catch. They're really beautiful. Um, they're usually composed of very young, hot blue stars. So it's very brilliant. Um, a lot of times you can see them without a telescope or binoculars. <clears throat> However, this one is a little dimmer. It, on the magnitude scale, apparent magnitude, it's at a positive 4.2. It's too dim to see with the unaided eye. If you don't understand the magnitude scale, um, go to episode two here on Space Talk. I compare and contrast apparent and absolute magnitude so you can understand that a little bit better. Um, so this starts cluster you'll want to catch in the northern hemisphere. Um, it's only visible for those who are below nine degrees north latitude. So if you are any further north of that, you won't be able to see it. So I'll probably skim through this pretty quickly since I think most of you are in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, but if any of you are in Singapore, I chose Singapore uh, because it's it's like five, they're five degrees north latitude. If you don't know what your north latitude is, go to geodatos.net. That's G-E-O-D-A-T-O-S.net. Really great source I use to find out longitude and latitude when I'm generating sky charts for some of my transmission members. Um, so for those who are maybe located in an area, you can see it. It starts to rise uh, just before 10 p.m. local time, and it's going to be sitting low on your southeastern horizon, about 18 degrees. So get up a high on a roof or on a hill. Otherwise, it can be obstructed by anything on your horizon, like um, trees or buildings. It's going to reach its highest point of only 28 degrees at about 1 a.m. So you, if you want to stay up late, try and catch it. 28 degrees, keep that in mind. That'll be over your southern horizon. Southern hemisphere, it starts to rise at about 9.30 p.m., pretty high up, 42 degrees above your southeastern horizon. And it stays at this height until about morning twilight, around 6 a.m., where it eventually is going to be further over to your southwestern horizon. Something to keep in mind, if this is maybe your first time listening to um, Space Talk or you've listened many times, uh, when I talk about the different areas of the horizon, something to keep in mind is that earlier in the night, typically it's visible um, either more more eastern, so your eastern horizon, um, it could be your southern or northern eastern horizon, but by the end of the night or early morning, it's going to be further over to your western horizon. 
It just has to do with the rotation of Earth. Uh, that, that's typically how uh, we see things um, here, here on Earth when we're seeing things uh, stretch across the sky or dance across the sky. So now February 27th, we've got, let's see, we have, um, okay, we have another open star cluster in Carina. Um, this is visible for anyone who's further north of, of 12 degrees latitude. So a little bit more visible here than the previous one. This open star cluster is known as IC2581. Uh, we did an episode in the past also talking about catalog names. So if you, these words and these numbers sound absolutely crazy to you, I totally understand that. They are pretty nuts. Um, they're really just the catalog names. You could just call it the open star cluster in Carina. There's quite a few of them. This one is also visible in the same viewing locations. It won't be visible further north of 12 degrees north latitude, as I mentioned. It's about a 4.0 magnitude, so same deal. Use a scope or binoculars. For those in the northern hemisphere who can see it, it'll start rising at about 9.37 p.m., and it will be about 17 degrees above your southeastern horizon, reaching its highest point of only 30 one degree, so about three of those fists, if you held your fist up to the sky and stacked them, that'll be about 1 a.m. above your southern horizon. And then lastly, for the southern hemisphere, it starts to rise about 9.21 p.m., sitting pretty high at about 41 degrees above your southeastern horizon, and then remaining visible until dawn, twilight, at about 6.25, where it's going to be a little bit lower, 37 degrees above your southwestern horizon. So that's everything for our um, deep sky objects, for our musty celestial events. One more note, since I mentioned the moon so many times, the moon phase for this week is the last quarter, which is going to be happening tomorrow, February 23rd, at approximately 5.32 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is when it reaches the like fullness of its last quarter phase, so like its precise last quarter phase. It's currently a waning gibbous, which means it was coming out of a full moon and it's waning. So it's shrinking, shrinking. So getting smaller into a last quarter and then eventually into a crescent and then eventually into a new moon. So a little bit of a, of a well, moon briefer, moon, moon phase briefer. Um, I'm going to do a quick music break and then we're going to jump into space history and of course, if anyone ever has any questions, do not hesitate to hop on here, hit the call-in button, and ask me a question. Let's hop back into it. So space history has become one of my, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> one of my favorite things to talk about here um, on Space Talk because, um, well, one, history is really, I think, important for our future <laughs> to kind of know, like, 
what we've already achieved, when we achieved it, what it took to achieve that, what were we going through as a society at that time. There's so many different factors that play a role, I think, in the advancement of humanity. And so talking about history and like learning about it, exploring it, pondering it, philosophizing, whatever it is, um, is always a good thing. Sorry, I, just bump, I keep bumping the mic. Oh, yay, going live. Um, so space history. We also started doing historical figures here on Space Talk. And historical figures, um, I, I so far have highlighted Charles Messier, Johannes Kepler, um, the Herschels, so Caroline and William Herschel, who were comet, comet hunters uh, and really incredible astronomers for King George III, and really exploring all these wonderful uh, and brilliant scientists who've contributed widely to the field of not only astrophysics, but also space exploration in general. So like rocket science, um, I should get into rocket science more, um, but I'm really just, uh, I, I know quite a lot more about astronomy, I would say. And plus, um, one of my favorite, uh, like, I guess, well, YouTube rocketeers is uh, Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. If you guys don't know about him, you have to go check out his stuff. He's so great at what he does. Um, and I just love his coverage of different rocket launches and, and the differences between them and the history of them. You can learn quite a lot. So our space history tends to include some rocket launches. <clears throat> Starting with February 24th in 2009, NASA launched the Orbiting Carbon Observatory aboard the Orbital Sciences Taurus rocket from Vandenberg Air Force Base. If anyone's on the West Coast, give me a what's up in the chat. Maybe send over a a clapping hand. I already got a couple of those. That's awesome. Excuse me for a second. <clears throat> there we go. Uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, really awesome launches have come out of there. I've attended one NASA event, a NASA socials program. Um, that was for two days. Got to see a launch. It was so foggy and cloudy. The weather can be really tricky there. And so it's, it happens quite often where launches can get canceled. Uh, another little fun fact is most of the spy satellites are launched out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. And it's not just because it's an Air Force base, but also because of where it's located. Um, a friend of mine, Dr. Kirby Runyon, who will be a guest soon, March 25th, he will be coming here on Space Talk. Um, he does so many incredible things, like he's researching sand dunes on Mars and researching things on the moon and how to uh, build lunar colonies. And I mean, just doing so many crowd things. The planetary scientist worked on the New Horizons mission uh, with Alan Stern, just so many incredible things. Um, and he told me about how when you launch a satellite from there because of the rotation of Earth, you're able to get as the Earth rotates and as that satellite is launching, it's able to then image the entire surface of Earth as it's doing one full rotation. So it's, I guess, put into the right area upon launch, uh, which it needs to be, um, as opposed to, say, a satellite that is geostationary is the term, where it needs to stay facing one specific region on Earth, uh, like our weather satellite, for instance, that goes our weather satellite or goes 16. We're up to some crazy number now. Um, that's what tells us the weather for the United States. So it's stationary and it rotates as the Earth rotates or it moves in space. But some of these spy satellites don't do that. They want to get a whole fixture of the entire Earth in one. And so launching from Vandenberg is usually quite convenient. <clears throat> Moving forward, on February 25th in the year 1979, 
the Soviet Union launched Soyuz 32 from Baikonur, carrying a two-person crew to the orbiting Sulyut 6 space station. Lieutenant Lieutenant Col- Lieutenant Vladimir Lydikov. I said I'm not. Um, it's really like tough to, to actually pronounce uh, some cosmonauts' names.、Um, I think just just pronouncing it in general with my crazy American accent can be quite quite difficult. I'm better at pronouncing.、Um, I would say maybe German German names sometimes, but Russian names are really tough.、Um, and this was during、um, yeah 1979, so you've got quite a lot going on. This was the first time Soyuz 32 was、um, was was crewed, so there was people on it, and.、Um, This was yeah during that time that Russia and the U.S. were constantly launching, constantly trying to compete. There was a lot of tension、um, during this time period. So if you wanted to ever look up what the Soyuz 32 looks like, what it was like for Soviet cosmonauts to be launching to space in these very tiny,、um, these tiny like、uh, spacecraft, it's it's really astonishing to think about. It hasn't changed much. It also was like this for the U.S. during、um, the Gemini program,、uh, and even even today.、Um, although I will say, SpaceX's Dragon capsule looks very comfortable with the touchscreen,、uh, yeah, touchscreen technology, and the, the seats look very comfortable. I'm pretty sure the suits are actually、um, thermoregulated, so really cool stuff. February 26th in the year 1783. Caroline Herschel, who's one of my favorite astronomers, discovered NGC two three six zero, known as the Faint Open Star Cluster. If you were to ever look it up and check out images of it, you'll notice a lot of red stars, kind of reddish hue stars. These are older stars; they're cooler,、um, and this is where I got the nickname of Faint, the Faint Open Star Cluster. So that was on February twenty sixth in the year seventeen eighty three. The last space history event we have today is for February twenty sixth, the year two thousand four. The Expedition Eight crew conducted the first two person spacewalk at the International Space Station with no person inside the space station. Let me say that again. So imagine this: you went on a launch with maybe your buddy. And there's no one else at the space station. It's just you two, and you have to do a spacewalk. Maybe you have to repair something, whatever it is, on the outside of the International Space Station. But there's no one inside. This is the first time it was ever done, where there was no astronaut, no crew, no person inside the space station except for these two people outside. So imagine you being outside alone. There's no one inside to, to you know. Help you through whatever task that you're doing. All you have is your fellow astronaut who's outside with you and mission control down on Earth.、Um, it probably was absolutely、uh, crazy, or maybe it wasn't crazy at all. Maybe I bet they were super calm throughout it because that's just what it takes to be an astronaut. You gotta remain calm. You gotta not panic in these situations. And of course, it ended up being totally fine.、Um, and they. Well, came back to Earth. So this was、um, my last event for space history that I wanted to、um, mention. That is a, that wraps about everything up that I wanted to chat about today for our musty celestial events, our astronomy term of the week, our deep sky objects, and our space history as well as our moon phase. 
One more reminder, we have that interview with Corey Powell on this Wednesday, February 23rd at 3 p.m. Central Time. An amazing American science writer and journalist, uh, particularly known for his writings in Discovery Magazine, where he became editor-in-chief in 2012, and then a long-standing collaboration with Bill Nye, um, where he is going to be announcing some cool things that he has coming up uh, this Wednesday. We also have a lot of questions that I included in there about the potential for extraterrestrial life, chatting about... Um, yeah, just all, all the big questions about space, talking about James Webb, the James Webb Space Telescope that just launched on Christmas. Um, the launch is happening right now with SpaceX and where the Artemis program is at currently and when are we going to get back to the moon? All these questions I'm going to chat with him about. So if you guys want to tune into that, that will be tomorrow at 3 p.m. Central Time. And I'm going to invite everyone again, if anyone from the audience wants to join any of my listeners um, go ahead and tap the call-in button and say hello. It looks like we've got a call. All right. Hello, Mario. Hi. You are on. Hello. What's up? What's up? So, um, so I have a question. Yes. yes. So, so you mentioned um, Saturn, you know, and its rings, and they're it's a very beautiful ring. So, you know, Saturn's ring, you know, they're like, you know, a lot of particulate matter, you know, just already <clears throat> so... I was thinking, these are the same circumstances with which the moon was created on Earth. So why why doesn't that happen on on Saturn? That's such a good question. It probably does. Um, and we actually spoke about this on a previous episode, Mario. I remember you calling in and chatting about the rings of Saturn before. Yeah, yeah I, I, I talk about it a lot. I really like them. Is Saturn your favorite planet? Yeah, you, know, uh, you know, honestly, picking picking a favorite parent is like asking to pick your favorite child. Like I, oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, you might feel differently when you. When, I don't. I'm not sure if you have children. Do you have children? Oh no, no. no but you might feel differently one day when you have children. They, they might get a little insulted if they say that <laughs> it's like picking picking your favorite planet. But yeah. uh, but I, I understand where you're coming yeah. from. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the funny thing about Saturn's rings is that um, I think it was in 2018 or 2019, it was first announced that Saturn now has more moons than previously counted. Originally, it was 63 moons. Jupiter had 79. Now Saturn has 82 moons. And on top of that, they discovered moonlets were forming or baby moons within the rings of Saturn. And so this is something that um, could happen. It's something that is happening. Uh, reason it's probably not ever happening around Earth is because of our location to the sun. We're a lot closer. We're more exposed to solar wind and radiation. And so um, the likelihood for, for rings to remain, especially icy particles that are made up of uh, these rings in Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, we're, we're, not too, we're, we're too close to the sun. We need to be further out in order to, to have that. Um, so... Our moon stuck around. It became our satellite, and and the rest is history. Yeah, which is which is pretty cool. But but it'll be cool though if more more moons start to form around Saturn, right? I mean, like, how crazy is that thought? Yeah, we start it, to... it's, it would be an interesting process to see. Uh, I feel like we we don't really we don't really get like to, to see that we have to get like really up close, like a planet. You know, obviously you can't do that because you know exoplanets are like you know not close. So it'd be a very interesting process to see. It would be. I think that would be super awesome. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions in our own solar system. 
Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, one more. I have a question for you. Have oh. you gone to a pod today? Astronomy oh, yes. picture of the day. Pod, yes, I believe there's like quasar today. Hold on, I'll, I'll just, it's on the tab right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If anyone else has a computer in front of you, um, if you don't know what APOD is, it's Astronomy Picture of the Day. I recommend going to apod.nasa.gov. Um, I would love to chat about what this what this picture is here. Uh, do you know much about, about what quasars are, Mario, other than the – I think it was a snack bar at one point? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, no. Quasars have actually famously been something, you know, that I actually struggle with, and I put it, like, on, like, the back burner. You know, I've been focusing on, like – black holes and stuff which are kind of similar i knew i believe they involve dying stars which is makes them similar but yeah i i'm and you know they also have that that same you know like property you know they're like like very bright and they have like that jet center yeah well the tricky thing about quasars is um the 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 name came from quasi stellar radio source so when it was getting picked up by astronomers, they were like, "Okay, this is this looks like some kind of star-like object, so quasi-stellar. It's kind of kind of star acting, um, and it's emitting radio waves. It's it's a radio source. So what exactly is it? Um, and so what this cool picture is? This is an artist rendition um, on APOD is showing this um, connectivity that quasars have with supermassive black holes that it's caused by this active galactic nucleus i mean literally the name active it's in the middle of a galaxy galactic and it's the nucleus so it's the center part um so it's it's more of this like result of an interaction of things happening at the core of a galaxy um that's how i like to explain it it can i mean it's 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 still an entity in itself where it's it's made up of an accretion disk so mentions here an accretion disk yeah oh, that's um, the word i'm looking for accretion disk yes yeah yeah which is just like a, i mean that's how a lot of things form like our our solar system or like um things around the star it's it's a it's a cut like um what's like the best i always want to say like a collection of dust and gas, things that are out in space that are getting pulled in by something that is really massive, has a strong gravitational influence on things around it, being pulled in by that object. And this object is a supermassive black hole. So what is more powerful than that in space? No one really knows right now. Um, and so all this crazy activity starts to happen around it. Uh, so I love this image. So if anyone else is looking at it, it just looks so crazy i mean you see things like this artist rendition just looks so awesome things getting pulled and stretched everywhere and then you have that jet beam of the of the radio waves that are um that are being emitted and, and on top of that you're now having um but probably yeah a ton of different different particles as well and things that are just beaming out of it um which could be really cool the the jet of who who knows what what else this is? I'm gonna look into it actually right now because I'm curious of what that would be. Um, distant blazar jet. But anyway, we can get into this another time and and, and go down a rabbit hole with this. But um, or you know, go down a black hole. Yeah. Go down a black hole. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Why I said rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, awesome. Yay. Well, Mario, uh, hope you're doing well. Hope you get to get out uh, sometime this week and check out some of those astronomical events. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And I hope you feel better because. I, yesterday you were really coughing a lot. Oh my gosh, it was yeah. horrible. Thank you. I'm feeling yeah. a lot better. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, glad. I'm glad. It's it's passing. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks All so right. much.
Alrighty, and it looks like we've got another caller. Hector, I'm going to invite you on right now. What's up? Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you feeling today? Feeling good, feeling good. I know, yesterday, I'm like not even going to publish the episode, so if you guys weren't here yesterday, you don't know what we're talking about. Oh, gosh, poor poor Mario and Hector had to to listen to that. I'm doing good. Um, So... I'm not sure, uh, I apologize if I missed it last week, but I wanted to mention um, a historical space event that just happened um, this past Saturday on the 18th, 18th um, mm-hmm. was the 90th anniversary of the discovery of Pluto. Yes. Yep. I did mention that in space oh. history. I thought that was super cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I wanted to mention it because I, I live here in... Um, in Arizona, and like I'm like three hours away from uh, Lowell Observatory. <gasps> so, That's so cool. Yeah, about a, a month ago, I got to go up there and see the telescope that they used to um, to find it. So I thought that was very interesting. That's so cool. Oh man, I, that must have been really exciting to be able to see that in person. I would love to see that telescope. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it's basically like a, I don't know, maybe like a hundred year old. Um, astrograph yeah um, i i do a little bit of astro astrography uh with like you know all the modern stuff and it's surprising to see how even 100 years ago they just had like um very similar equipment you know to to track the sky and so on and it was just very very interesting that's so cool so what um i'd love to see some of your your astrophotography do you publish it anywhere yeah i have some of them on my instagram uh, okay. I'm still, you know, getting started, learning how to process, uh, but yeah. I'm going to, I think I found you. I think I follow you on Instagram, I'm pretty sure. Oh, awesome. Um, what What is your Instagram? It's uh, H Ramos, H-R-A-M-O-S. Ramos. Um, H Ramos, let me see. Hector Ramos, I think I found you. Uh, software engineer, look up. Yep, that's me. Yeah, follow back. Okay, awesome. This is great. If anyone wants to, to, to follow along in, in what I'm looking at, definitely go check out his Instagram. You can take in some incredible photos. Oh, thank you. The Heart Nebula IC1805. That's incredible. How um how long? Oh, it says 10 hours of data. Wow. What's like the longest you've had to image an object? Um, I think around 10 hours is probably... Uh, the maximum I've done right now. I'm so one of these things about astrography is um, you probably spend way more time in the processing uh, side of things, uh, more than you know the time you spend capturing the data. And that's an area I need to basically uh, brush up my skills. Yeah, it's the is the editing. I think that's like the case with so so many things too. Yeah. Like yeah, videos and oh, that's that's so crazy. Um, well, this picture also in front of Starship looks awesome. Oh my goodness! This are you are you based in Texas too? No, Arizona. You said no. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm here in Scottsdale, Arizona, but I do uh, travel to Texas pretty often. I, I spent a lot of time uh, down by Starbase. 
That is so exciting. Wow. Well, I'm hoping to get down there soon. So maybe I could I could take some pictures as well as you have when, when I get yeah, down yeah. there. Great. That is so cool. Awesome. Well, Hector, thanks for coming on and, and saying hi and sharing about the, the Pluto discovery. Yeah, I, I'm just so excited when um, when we went over that um, last week. But I, I wish that uh, that I had known that you got to actually go see the observatory yourself. That's really cool. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. Alrighty, everyone. Well, thank you all so much for joining this episode of Space Talk. Um, as always, I always have a blast um, hearing from you guys. So feel free at any time to call in. Um, that's why this app is called Call In, because literally you guys can call in and say hello. Um, so just one more reminder, tomorrow's interview is going to be at 3 p.m. Central Time if you want to tune into that. And otherwise, I hope you guys get to have a wonderful rest of your day and you get to look up at the night sky. And as always, add Astra.